So I get to talk with you guys about keeping the faith. Um, I like this subject. The reason I like this subject is because I don't... Uh, it makes me nervous. Um, talking doesn't make me nervous, but keeping the faith makes me nervous. I, um, I came to know the Lord really young. Uh, probably, um, probably I was two. Um, I remember praying with a leader at a VBS uh, Bible school, um, ooh, this is mobile, uh, asking the Lord into my heart. I remember uh, giving my life to the Lord again, uh, probably in a fresh way, uh, meaningful way to me when I was 11, and then getting baptized and being called by the Lord when I was 14. And what that has done for me has given me a sense of kind of trepidation. When it comes to my walk with the Lord, like, for one thing, I was talking with somebody the other day uh, at work, and I was like, you know, I'm following the Lord. It's hard for me when I'm following the Lord to, to when I think about it, to, to make sure that I'm not just following in the pattern of people in my life that are older than me. That I'm not just following along the deep ruts of the track laid ahead of me, that I'm actually truly believing what I believe because I didn't get to rebel and go find some other faith. I didn't get to quit anything in my life yet as far as my faith goes. Now, the truth is I've shed a lot of stuff that I used to think and believe and um, I've laid aside a bunch of stuff and that's part of what keeping or tending your faith requires. Um, Laying aside like Matt was talking about earlier, Earlier, laying aside weight, laying aside sin, laying aside the things you used to think when you believed as a child, when you thought as a child, and now moving on uh, to something better. But in doing that, knowing what's still on the table with your faith and knowing what things are established and firm and foundational. Um, But for me, the thing that's concerning for me, having been in church uh, for that long, I have watched my grandfathers, I've watched my fathers, I've watched those figures in my life, because I had father figures, I had grandfather figures, not just, I have a great father, a great dad, who's following the Lord and is is steady and strong and keeping up with his faith, but I've had guys that I looked up to who I thought, when I grow up, I'm going to be like him, who I still think, when I grow up, I still, in my head, my, my brain tells me, like, when I grow up, I'm going to do that, you know? Um, it's getting late for that. But <laughs> but when I grow up, I'm going to be just like that guy. Watching guys like that fall, devastating to me. Well, at what point do I not do like you did? What point do I break off? You think about the Blue Angels, they fly in such tight formation that it's happened before and it happens quite often when they're flying in those, in those aerobatic, low-level maneuvers when, when, when you're flying in that close formation, when you're not the lead, if you're not the point man, then you're just you're flying on the wingtip. You're not flying on the horizon line. You're flying on the wingtip of the person next to you. Because if you if you were to choose your own course and fly on the off of the what, where the horizon line is, you just smack into each other all the time. So you give up flying with your eyes on the horizon, and you start looking at the wingtip of the person who's just adjacent to you. Right? That's how they fly, and that's how they die. 
because if one of the pilot, if the lead pilot makes a mistake, now of course there's head-on mid-air collisions, but if they're flying in that tight of a formation and this guy misjudges his loop and he comes in a little too low and impacts the guy next to him, those guys, they turn off all their warning signs. You know, they're like, yeah, stall warning, yeah, we don't need that. <laughs> Low-level warning, we know, that's what we do. And so <laughs> they've got all that stuff already shut off or ignored, and they just impact right behind the other guy because they're what? 62 inches off his wingtip or something like that. So they both go a auger in together. My concern is at what point do I take my eyes off this leader, this father figure, this other person, my pastor? I have pastors. I have guys that I admire, guys that I listen to, guys that I, that I look to for pattern. How do I pattern my life? That's biblical. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? But for me, Finishing the race means keeping the faith. And I have to know when do I take my eyes off the wingtip of the guy next to me and put my eyes on something else. And that's what I, as a believer, have learned in my, so to speak, adulthood. <laughs> right? Um, I'm still going to do stuff when I grow up, I promise. But, but what I've learned to do is fix my eyes on Jesus. The funny thing about teaching third in a, a row of, of a retreat like this that's on a theme is that you don't get any fresh scriptures, right? So so all the scriptures that I have pretty much Matt's already used. I don't care. It's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> he stole them. I don't have more. I didn't go think of more. The reason that we're going to be sharing the same scriptures, though, is because we're talking about the same thing. And we're not we're not reinventing this idea. We're presenting this idea. And so we don't have brand new stuff. We didn't make up new scriptures to share with you. Just because Matt used mine doesn't mean I get to go find different ones. So, Hebrews chapter 12, right? But first, that's where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. That's where my goal is to say, if we want to finish the race, if we want to, in finishing the race, keep the faith, then we need to have our eyes fixed where they need to be fixed. And our eyes need to be on Jesus Christ, not on anything short of that. Jesus Christ, where? Jesus Christ in heaven. Jesus Christ, when? Jesus Christ in eternity. Not when we retire, not when we grow up and get whatever we were going to do, get or do whatever we're going to do. Our goal, the finish line, is can be nothing short of eternity. That's where it has to be if we're going to keep the faith. Otherwise, we're short-sighted. Okay, so now I've said what I'm going to say. We can go eat lunch. As you guys know, I already read the scriptures with Matt. So, but look at, let's look. Remember, just really quick, before we go to chapter 12 in Hebrews, you guys can stay there because I know some of you turned. Um, first, uh, second Timothy chapter t- four <clears throat> and verse six, uh, says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So, Paul, at the end of a long life, he didn't think his first missionary journey, he didn't think his second missionary journey, or his third, or his first incarceration in Rome. He didn't think of any of those things as his finish line. He only thought of his entry into eternal life as his finish line. 
You guys have all seen those videos of the guys that finish a little early, right? They've been riding in a, a bicycle race, and they're like, riding, 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 yay, woo! <laughs> you know, they just eat it right there at the finish line. They're trying to limp across the finish line. Paul knew exactly where that line was, and he says, I'm now crossing it, but I haven't crossed it. I'm not, he talked about letting loose or, or loosing the ship, that being I've finished the race. And, you know, I'm not out to pasture. <clears throat> Guys, pastors don't retire. That's, I, I've, I've, I've figured that out. That's why churches don't offer retirement plans. <laughs> Maybe you just guys figured that out. You just got on staff with Matt. Like, uh, where's the retirement plan? This is the retirement plan. <laughs> Your plan is to, to die trying. Um, and so there's the, we're not we're not getting there, guys. When I turned thirty, I had my first midlife crisis. It only lasted about forty five minutes, but I had it. I was taking a shower and I was like, uh oh. I'm getting old at a faster rate than I'm getting smart. Like, like you can see, you know, like the supply and demand curves, you know, or the, the these two points aren't going to meet at, at at any point. Uh oh, I'm too my 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 glide trajectory is off. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be finished by the time my life is finished. I just knew it. And this is something that the Lord spoke to me. He said. You know, you're not, you're not here to get finished and then be like a partner in the business. Peter always wanted to be partners with Jesus, right? And Jesus, uh, you know, the other disciples, they're kind of knuckleheads, but, but me and you, I want, I want to be a partner with you. And I want to, me and you are going to go and, and do this, right? And Jesus is like, no, you're going to be a project of mine. <laughs> and you are my workmanship and I'm working on you. You are the project. And so what I realized is that, no, I'm not going to get mature. And, and for me, it was being a good pastor, like being a mature pastor, being a full-fledged, I don't know, like journeyman level. I can't kind of think was in my mind, like, like when does my apprenticeship end in my journeyman level? And I was already pastoring a church, so it couldn't be, you know, having my first pastorate. That wasn't it. It was something else. It had to be maturity. And what I realized was that I wasn't going to attain some level of, of growth or maturity that I was going to have arrived ever. That my life would end before I did that. And what I recognized was that God isn't preparing me for something that I'm supposed to be doing in this life. God is preparing me. He's growing me. This apprenticeship, apprenticeship is for eternity. And if my eyes are set anywhere short of that, it's a false summit. If you guys, we talked about, uh, we talked about, uh, running long distances. You guys ever climb? You ever bumped into a false summit? Those are literally the worst thing ever. The other worst thing is if somebody tells you it's a four mile hike and it's not so much. It's more like eight. And then every corner, you're like, if we come around this ridge, we're gonna see the lake. There's no lake around this ridge. It's just another trail. And you keep going. You're like, no, I'm not here. And it's the most disheartening thing ever. And you start losing enthusiasm really fast if you start, if somebody's misleading you about where the finish line is. And as believers, we've got to know where the finish line is for us. It isn't when you get married. It isn't when you have kids. It isn't when you have, you know, two cars in the garage. It isn't when you retire. Please, it is not when you retire. 
Because that is where I watch believers fall. Guys retire. David retired. He didn't go out with the troops. <laughs> you know what? This is for the young men. I'm just going to sit back here. And he stopped fighting and he started flirting and he started falling. And that's, that's what happened with David. Don't let that happen to you. Don't set your, set your sights short of eternity because that, that's where you lose your faith because that's where our eyes are supposed to be. So Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> Excuse me. So over in Hebrews chapter 12. Now I'm going to cheat and I'm going to read you a verse out of chapter 11, but I want you to be in chapter 12. Uh, but you can look if you're really quick. You can look with me. Verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. Paramount to what we're talking about. Keeping what? Keeping the faith. Holding steady by keeping the faith. Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And this is the danger. We can be diligently seeking God. We can be we can be running hard. We can be running faithfully. And if we think that retirement, think that uh, some sort of spiritual plateau is the goal, is the end game, we get to a certain place, and we we think to, to ourselves, why did I leave Egypt to eat sand? See, the, the people of Israel did this. They, they got out into the wilderness and they said, God, why did you take us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why did God take, the God took them out of the Egypt, not for the wilderness, but for the promised land. And they were comparing slavery to the desert. And they were like, slavery was better. And God didn't even disagree with them. He said, I put you in the wilderness to try you and to test you, to humble you. And so that is where we live, guys. Not so much in a spiritual sense. I know that Joshua taking the land is supposed to be where Christians are. But if you're comparing the wilderness with the reward that God has for you, this life, Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation, you will have trial. Do not fear. I have overcome the world. Do you know how he overcame the world? One word, resurrection. That is it. If it's less than that, he didn't overcome the world. Jesus didn't have a nice life. Jesus didn't retire. Jesus didn't have kids. He didn't have a garage. He never even had a church. He rose again from the dead, victorious over death, and he showed us what was coming for us. And if our eyes are set short of that, anything short of that is the goal. If that is how we measure God's ability to reward those who diligently seek him, we're going to be disappointed, disillusioned, and depressed, and a lot of D things that I could keep going, but it'd get really punny. So, uh, all the D things, this starts sounding like John Corson, you know? Like, uh, I'm not trying to, it's just happening today. Um, I don't even have, you know, there's nothing like that in my notes. Uh, it's just like crayon, like a kid drew this. Um, so, uh, if we set our eyes short of eternity, we will lose the idea that God can reward those who diligently seek Him. I think about the guys who've gone before me, like especially in the Calvary Chapel movement. Maranatha is the name of the game at Calvary Chapel. Come, Lord Jesus. Guys looking for the soon return of Jesus Christ. 
doing it in a somewhat immature way. Banking on Jesus coming back rather than banking on living for him throughout their life. Banking on Jesus is going to come back in like, I don't know, like 20 minutes or something. I can hang on that long. You shouldn't be living your life holding your breath any more than you can run long distance and hold your breath. Holding your breath for the next thing, right? The first rule of running, the first rule of climbing is let go, (laughs) relax your hands, and breathe. Keep breathing because you're going to be doing this for ever so long of a time. <laughs> just, like, don't keep thinking. Of, and, and, you know, if our eyes are always just on the finish, not even a good place to focus. Just keep telling yourself it's not time to quit yet. It's not, it's not an option. It's not even something we're going to think about. I am here to run. I'm not here to finish. I'm not here to be done. I'm here to run. And so that's, at least that's the mind game I play. When I run, you hit the wall and you just go think of something. If you think about when it's time to quit, you'll, you'll talk yourself into it. You just got to think about something else, like go to your happy place or whatever. (laughs) So, so that's the way it is with Christianity. We can't be thinking about when is this going to pay off? See, Matthew chapter 24. Matt didn't steal this one. (laughs) I found it. I found it while he was talking because he stole all my other ones. (laughs) I was like, ha, I don't think he doesn't have time. I can't mention this one. I probably stole it from his next teaching. Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. What are we supposed to be doing when Jesus comes for us? Whether he comes for us with the black hood and the scythe. I mean, oh wait, that was the angel of death. But, but whether he comes for you like individually or with, for all of us corporately, what should he find you doing? What does it mean to be ready for Jesus to come? It means to be surprised in a good way that he showed up. Oh, hey, I was just doing stuff that you told me to do. Should, do you want me to keep it? I guess we don't get to finish this one. You know? What should you be doing? You should be doing what you're supposed to be doing every day. The day that Jesus comes back, the best way to be ready is to be, be busily surprised. Oh, I didn't hear you come in. You know? That's what it means to be ready. That's what it means to finish the race. What was Paul doing the week before he was beheaded? At least it looks like it. He was writing a letter to Timothy. What was it that he was doing the years prior to his death? Writing letters to Timothy and other people and and serving the church. He didn't he didn't say, Don't bother me now, I'm busy dying. He said, Here's some last words of fatherly advice to you. As I go, I want to leave you with something. I I'm caring about the church, I'm caring about what you're doing. You finish the race. And so but an evil servant I'm sorry, verse 46. Blessed is that servant whose master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say, it will make him ruler over all his goods. Do you guys catch that? When we finish this life, we're not done. You're not being prepared as a man, prepared as a leader, prepared as a servant of God to be done with any of that. The most persistent thing in all of Jesus' parables about what it's like to enter the kingdom of God is increased, added, and 
elevated levels of responsibility. You're not being trained to be responsible just because it's good to be kind of a wise, responsible personality. I don't know what it is God has for us to do. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard what God has planned for us. But I know it includes responsibility because he kept saying that. And so if, if you're thinking, well, I, I became responsible to a certain degree. And it isn't any, you know, it doesn't pay off to keep learning or keep growing and keep seeking and keep, keep serving. It, it's not true. You're not done. God's preparing you not for what you still have strength to do in this body, in this life. He's preparing you for an eternity of serving him. It's something to look forward to. It's something to, to fix our eyes on. You make him master of all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming. <sighs> it's taking too long. <laughs> right? And he begins to beat his fellow servants. And eat and drink with the drunkards. So he begins to take it out on people around him. Disgruntled. Going postal. Uh, you know why people go postal? Because they work for the post office. You know why they are disgruntled when they work for the post office? Because they feel like they're not valued. If anyone comes to God, he must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you are disgruntled. If you are wavering in your faith, saying, I don't, why am I, why do I even bother? You're not considering the pension plan that God has in mind for you. You're not considering what it, what real retirement is for a believer. Eternal life. That's a really long time with awful lot of resources. The things that God has planned for us are incredible. And so you begin to beat your fellow servants, trying to get out of them something for yourself. Jesus would say that the 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 bad shepherds would would fleece the flock, right? And we can do that with our family. You don't have to be a pastor to fleece the flock. You can do that with your family, your wife, your kids, people around you. Try to get something for yourself. The master of that servant. And eat and drink with the drunkards, right? That was the last part of that. Just hedonism. Eat something. Get drunk. Reward yourself. We have a saying at 2 o'clock at work, uh, treat yourself. And it's time to go get a coffee. And so, like, you know, usually our cases are done around noon or 1 o'clock, and somebody will roll into the little cath lab where I work. It's cardiac cath lab. It's not a urinary catheter. You guys are gross. It's a heart catheter, angioplasties and stents, okay? Clean, scientific stuff. That's what I'm into. So, anyway. <laughs> okay, so don't think urinary catheter. Not that. I don't have time for that. Um, so, <laughs> so, somebody roll in and be like, it's treat yourself time. It's time to treat yourself. And so, she's like, we've been working hard. It's time to, time to take a break and treat yourself. Well, Christians do that, and they go get drunk, and they go eat and drink. They go seek after the things of the world, because they're like, I've been working so hard, so I'm going to treat myself. And this is what this guy does. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and in an hour when he's not aware of, and he will cut him in two, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. Why hypocrites? Because he's li- living a lie. He's living as if Jesus was unable to reward those who diligently seek him. 
he as a leader is lying about who God is by investing in another company. It's like selling your stock in the company you're working for and buying the, the competition's stock. That's what, it, that's what it's like to seek after the things of the world. Because the people around you, they don't care what you say. They don't care where you clock in. They care where you put your money. Right? If you're an investor, that's what you like to talk with other people about. Is I don't care what you think is a good investment. I want to know where your money is. Like Warren Buffett is like the... I don't know if anybody really follows him or not. But people, you know, people want to know where he put his money because they trust his opinion, right? Well, people who follow you, your children, your wife, your family, your friends, they look at where you put your life, where you invest your life. And if you're a hypocrite, if you invest your life in the things of this world and lie about to the people around you and even to yourself about God's ability to reward those who diligently seek you, you do the world and yourself a disservice. And so keeping the faith means fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're, uh, on Jesus. Um, and let's, okay, I think I, I, I misled you and I took you away from Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at that now. <clears throat> I mean, he took all of them. He took Colossians from me, took everything. Okay, so... Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, verse 1, since we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what it means to despise the shame. It means to think little of it. It means to be like, I'm dirty now, but I'll clean up later. That's how, that's how you get through stuff, right? And you're like, well, this is, this is dirty now. This is, this is uh, painful now. This is this way now. But it's going to end. It's going to pay off. And so Jesus did that. Jesus wasn't unaffected by the cross. You realize that? You read in the Gospel of John, you read about his physiological response to the anxiety, the heartfelt anxiety about the cross. Not a nail had touched him yet. Not a whip had touched him yet. And he, with the anxiety that was produced by the anticipation of what he knew was coming, was sweating great drops of blood. His capillaries in his body. None of you have done that with sin yet. Matt said, write down your sin. I didn't write anything down. I don't like people telling me what to do. But I thought about it. And <laughs> I'm just rebellious. I didn't have anything to write with. Uh, but, but I thought about it. But what I did think about was this. In Hebrews here, it says this. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, the striving against sin. Before a nail touched him, before the whip touched his skin, Jesus was already bleeding. And you know what he said about that moment? He said, Father, I don't, I don't want to do this. 
He wasn't lying. He's not a liar. He didn't just say, I don't want to do this. He didn't want to do it. He, he was reconciled to the fact that this is awful. That this is terrible and I am terrified. I'm beside myself with fear and anxiety. To the point that before any physical thing touched him, he was already bleeding. And what Paul says here is, you guys are sinning and you haven't even gotten that far yet. Consider Jesus. You know how that went. He endured such hostility from sinners. Why? Because he had his eyes on the joy that was set before him. We're not, we're not called just like Matt was saying, talking about just to agonize. We're not called just to embrace, uh, the pain and the suffering of life. We're called beyond that. That's true. It is not true. We're called beyond that to look for the joy that is set before us. Jesus didn't, he, he was reconciled to the fact that the cross was not fun, like, and, and really bad. He was reconciled to that. But he thought small of it. He despised it. To despise something is to be like, that's nothing. This is nothing. Compared to what he had his eyes fixed on. The joy that was set before him. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says two things. He says, the kingdom of God is like a merchant who went out to look for pearls. And he found a pearl of great price. And for the joy of it, went and sold everything that he had in order to buy that. And he says, in another way, I flip-flopped the order, but that's okay. In another way, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who was wandering out in a field and found a buried treasure in the field. And for the joy of it, sold everything that he had. See, he didn't go for the sorrow of it. That's what the rich young ruler did. He came running to Jesus. Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you should do, obey the law. And he's like, I did that. He's like, sure. Um, but <laughs> what you should really do is sell everything that you have and come follow me. If you really want eternal life, this is what you should do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And Jesus identifies the contrast here with this parable he tells about the man who found the treasure in the field. He didn't say he went and sold everything in sorrow because it cost him everything that he had. He says the guy went laughing all the way to the bank. was like, I'd like to mortgage my house. <laughs> you have no idea. What are you buying? <laughs> Not saying. I got to think. <laughs> Follow me and find out. What, why, when, when you sold everything in that culture, you know what you also sold? You sold your future. You sold your kids. You sold your wife. You sold everything that you have. When you sold everything that you have, it wasn't limited to just your stuff. You could sell yourself for seven years of indentured servitude, right? And so you would, this guy sold everything that he had. Jesus said that about discipleship. He said, you want to be my disciple? You need to hate your Wife, you need to hate your kids. You need to give up even your own life if you want to come follow me. That's the requirement. That's what it costs. But we don't do that just out of like depression. Like, well, I sold everything I have and here I am in the wilderness. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> like, this is not, this is not the goal. To be a Christian is not the goal. This isn't the price. To be in heaven is the price. This is the process. To be a Christian is the process. This is the not fun part. And it's not even that bad. There's actually heat in the building. 
we're not even out in the snow anywhere. You know what I mean? Like not every day, every day is even a bad day. But even if every day was a bad day, it would still be worth it because of what Jesus has offered to us. And so, <clears throat> so Paul, in Acts chapter 20, this is another one that Matt stole, but we should remember it. Remember that it says that in the Bible. Acts chapter 20, verse 23. Jed, you covered this on last Thursday, didn't you? He stole it too. Um, verse, verse 23. Uh, let's start at verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is the faith which we present, profess. The gospel, to the ministry, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is his testimony. He says, I want to finish my race. To finish my race means to testify to the gospel of the grace of God throughout the trials that await me. And so for us, I think of the things that can move us. Um, if you look back in Second Timothy, He says, finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me also, but all who have loved his appearing. One last scripture. uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1. In verse 23. Ah, let's start at verse 21. 23 is the good one, but let's let's get some context here. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so this is the thing that's paramount. If you want to keep the faith, if you want to finish the race, you have to maintain your hold on the hope to which you were called. And replacing that with cleverly devised Christian enticements, your best life now, for example. Uh, <laughs> your best life is not now. That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to have our best life now. Now, the guy in... It's biblical. You can find a guy having his best life now. He's in Matthew chapter 24. And he's the bad servant who's beating his fellow servants and eating and drinking with the drunkards. Going for it. He's here to get what he can get. 
And when it doesn't pay off with, with holy Christian living, he turns to hedonism. And that's what happens to guys. That's what happens to men who have their sights set on something short of eternity. And it can happen to us. And so we are grounded and steadfast. The idea of being grounded. <laughs> when you're grounded, that, that's a good thing because you're not, you're not able to be electrocuted. Well, depends. Actually, you're kind of more able to be electrocuted. But let's, <laughs> but if you're grounded, you can't hold a charge. Let's put it that way. Um, I look out here, I'm like, oh great, there's an electrical inspector here. He's going to call me on that. <laughs> Watch that guy. Okay. Uh, one of the things I really enjoyed in uh, inorganic chemistry was studying the periodic table and finding out there are such things as noble gases. Over on the left-hand side, or the right-hand side, right? Uh, the noble gases, helium, uh, nitrogen, and some others. <laughs> but they're noble because their, their electron fields around them are completely filled. They're, they're fulfilled in themselves. They don't need, they don't have need. They're neither, they're neither lacking an electron to, to fill up their potential or having too much and wanting to get rid of one. They're perfectly stable because they have all that they need. Grounded and steadfast. I think of the, of nobility. A noble is supposed to be unassailable, untouchable because they've already got what they want. That's what it means for me. To be noble, to be grounded, to be steadfast, at rest and off the market. Happily married is how we say it in common vernacular. You know, like somebody comes coming on to you, you're like, happily married. I'm fine. I don't need you. I don't want you and I don't have to have you. David, on the other hand, having been a warrior all his life, having been given great and precious, the greatest promises that any king had ever been given. Lost sight of that in his twilight years of his of his life and of his kingdom. He lost sight of the great promise that God had given him and took in the picture, the image of Bathsheba bathing on a roof. Right? Why was that enticing? Because he'd taken his eyes off of what God had really given him. The eternal blessing. Now as I'm talking about David being told that his dynasty would last Forever. That's a lot longer than the Ting or the Ming or the Qing dynasty could say. Right? All those, those these great heritages that people talk about. God promised David the thing that every king has always wanted. Your kingdom is an, will be an everlasting kingdom. I will bring a king on your throne that will rule forever and ever and ever. David had that promise when he slept with Bathsheba. Somebody else's wife. And the reason he did that, the reason that that happened is because he set his sights on things short of heaven, short of what God had promised him. And we can do exactly the same thing and we cannot do exactly the same thing. That reason that Bible story is in the Bible is not so that we can identify with it when it happens to us. It's so that it won't happen to us. Like, <laughs> I'm like David. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a good thing. Like you're supposed to, those are supposed to be cautionary tales that you're to avoid. And so we have this opportunity to avoid them. To be like instead of David in that way, be like David is mentioned and the saints are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read to you from that. I lied to you. I don't usually mean to lie to you. 
because I said we do end with Colossians scripture, and uh, we didn't. Let's just read from verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself. Now, you're going to know that Hebrews chapter 11 is just running through all these people in the Old Testament who lived in faith, lived by faith, right? We're like, yeah, I want to be like those guys. Listen to what those guys are described like. It says, okay, so we'll just give one for example. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful. This is that same chapter that has, he's able to reward those who diligently seek him. It's just previous. She judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, that's Abraham, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Listen to this. This is the part of Hebrews chapter 11 that people don't really like. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. That means if you're like the people in Hebrews chapter 11, you will die not having received what God has promised. You will die in this world in which you have tribulations. You will die not having received what God has promised for you. So if you're looking for it short of death, short of eternal life and resurrection, you're looking in the wrong place and you will be disappointed and you will be weakened in your faith because of it. Keep your eyes where they ought to be. Where Jesus is at the right hand of God. How did he get there? He despised the shame. He endured the cross. He was obedient even unto death. And therefore God has exalted him to the place above every name. That is what we are following in our example. These all died in faith. Not having received the promise. But having seen them afar off were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Don't let John Wayne confuse you. Being a pilgrim is okay. Is he always, you know, hey, pilgrim. You know? Like, no, being a, well, that's what I am. I am a pilgrim. You're right. I don't have what I'm seeking. I haven't found it yet. I haven't received it yet. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country which they came out of, that's Abraham who left his family in his own country in Ur, they would have had an opportunity to return. And that's what I see happening. That's what breaks my heart, is to see men who I have followed, men who have run hard and run strong and with endurance, go, go, back, go back home, go back to the things that they were a part of before. Run back to the things that the world has to offer. After having lost so much, after having invested so much, as an old man chasing after the things that a young man is foolish enough to chase, is it's embarrassing, honestly. It really is. But we have run the risk of doing that if we set our sights short of that. We'll invest and then we'll regret and we'll go back. But now, verse 16, they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You guys know where that city is? I encourage you, if you get a chance, uh, I don't want to lie twice and read two scriptures to you. But, but take, take the opportunity to read Revelation chapter 21. That's, not, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for something short of that. We're not looking for, uh, you know, 
dandying our grandchildren on our knee and that being like what we, you know, oh, it all paid off. No, that isn't the payoff. Your grandchildren are grow up and they're going to buy an Xbox and they're going to ignore you and despise you and it'll be super depressing. Because there's no grandchildren that can pay the, the things that God asks of us. God wants much more than that. He wants our whole life. So, for the joy that's set before you, endure the things that God puts in your life. Despise the shame. And run the race that God has set before you. That is what it means to keep the faith, the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word reassures us. The people around us, everybody else is living for something that they can see. They're living for something that is a five-year plan or a ten-year plan or a two-day plan. Living for the rewards that this life can offer them. And we're on a completely different track. And I pray that you'd help us. Times like this. When we get together, Lord, we have this opportunity to remember that there are other people out there that are seeking the same things that we are. Seeking heaven, seeking eternity, seeking reward there and not here. And I pray that you would encourage us this weekend, just refocusing on what it is and where it is that you've called us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.